This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. What's going on, everybody? we got another great podcast for you today. Victor Lubin from Landshark Outdoors is with us. He's got an interesting story of starting fishing on a pier, moving to the beach, and then turning into one of the biggest sensations on social media today, Landshark Outdoors. If you don't know it, go follow on all the different platforms, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. He's everywhere, and he's our guest today. And here we go with Victor right now. The behind the scenes of how an actual chef approaches a dish from start to end really changes the way you view cooking. Hmm. I don't know how passionate you are about cooking. Well, I'm passionate about eating. (laughs) I'm Victor Hlubin of Landshark Outdoors, and this is the Tom Rowland Podcast. Victor, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm doing great. I'm happy to be here. Good. I'm happy you're here, too, man. I'm a fan. I like your stuff. Thank you. I as well as you. So, Landshark Outdoors. Uh, Tell me how that started. It started just like the name sounds. Um... Just a couple crazy kids back in the day, like 2010, 2011. I grew up fishing the pier and saw these guys, the older guys, catching sharks from the pier, which slowly escalated into trying to catch them off the beach. And uh, it just kind of turned into, it was my first form of content creation. I just picked up a GoPro, bought these lights, put them on this PVC rig, and I just started filming what I thought was really cool, was catching sharks from the beach. You know, growing up, not having access to a boat, it was the biggest thing a land-based fisherman could attain, right? It was a shark. Um, perspectives change a little bit when you start fishing offshore, yeah. your view of sharks. But back in the day, it was it was the pinnacle for me, you know, catching hammerheads, bull sharks, tiger sharks off the beach was just, I, I didn't think there was anything greater. And I still have a passion for it, even though I don't do it. I just still think it's one of the coolest things any land-based fisherman can do. Yeah. So you're growing up around where Jupiter? Is that is that where you? I are? grew up. No, I grew I grew up in uh, like Deerfield, Pompano area. Deerfield Pier was my uh, old stomping grounds. Deerfield nice. Pier. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's uh, what else do they catch off of that? Like normally? Oh, you'd be surprised. I mean, a lot of stuff. Uh, I mean, Pompano, a lot of big kingfish. I would say that mm-hmm. pier was really known for trolley rigging for kingfish, but Spanish mackerel run. We used to catch keeper muttons off the pier after in October, November, when you got a hard northeast wind. Sometimes we would get muttons that push in and you catch a lot of keeper muttons, red grouper. I've seen some pretty incredible stuff that, you know, any offshore fisherman would be pretty 
surprised to see. We've yeah. seen 60 pound amberjacks come in, uh, chase the goggle in the wintertime. It's just a lot of crazy stuff. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And so how old are you when you're, when you're first fishing this pier? My dad used to drop me off or my dad used to come and sit there and read a book because he hates fishing, which is <laughs> hilarious because I love it. And he'd buy me a pack of squid and I would go out there and sling my squid. I was like 13, 12. And then eventually he'd let me say, uh, sit out there by myself. Um, and that's where I met a lot of my friends that I'm still friends with today is just fishing the pier. So like 12 to 15 is where I really started. How did got you started. convince him that it was time for you to be able to sit out there by yourself? I have some very, or I had some very protective Eastern European parents. And when he saw that the 12 year olds were out there by themselves sleeping on the pier, he's like, all right, it's time to let go. <laughs> <laughs> Plus he might, you know, there's only so many books you can read, I guess, yeah. uh, sitting out there. But that seems like an interesting time when, when you just want to go so bad and, and you're being, I don't want to say held back because he's supporting you, like, you know, going out there and sitting and reading the book and buying you the squid and dropping you off and everything. But it's like, man, if I could just, if, if you had, if you had your way, you would have just stayed out there. Right. So oh, yeah. you have to convince them. I remember doing that when I was a kid of like trying to convince my parents, it's okay. I promise you, I'm going to be fine out here. And, mm -hmm. and then they let you eventually. We, and we stayed out there literally. We, uh, uh, there was like a group of four guys and our parents would rotate taking us to the pier when we were like 14, 15, they would drop us off on a Friday night and the pier used to be open 24 seven. We would sleep out there. So we'd fish all afternoon, catch our bait at night, wake up the next morning. We'd be so tired sleeping on a plank of wood. And then we'd fish all day until Saturday night. And then Sunday, you're just beat. You don't <laughs> want to do anything Sunday. Dang. And then what would you do with all the fish? You bring a big cooler out there or what, what would you do? We, uh, you know, we got creative. We, um, we used to sell it on the pier. Mm. Um, I don't know you're not supposed to, but that's what we did back in the day is hoodlums on the pier. Um, you basically just try to make your money back so that way you could fish the next weekend. Mm -hmm. Your parents would give you 20 bucks. You'd make it last at 7-Eleven. You live off of taquitos and Arizona green teas. <laughs> and and your pier admission was $4. And back in the day, a six-ounce sinker is what you needed, and that was like a dollar. And then it started to be $2 and $3, and it got really expensive. But you just... A lot of times we ate it, but a lot of times we sold it. And, yes. of course, we used it for shark bait. Yeah. And so migrating from the pier to the beach, what what is that like? Someone needs a car, so you got to have find that friend with a car. Um, and it was a very different, different experience. You know, uh, we needed to get a kayak. My buddy got a kayak at a garage sale for $20, Mike Cashman. And um, we just started going. We just started exploring different beaches. And, you know, it's all nighttime because in South Florida, the last thing you want to do is draw attention with how crowded our beaches are to catching a shark off the beach. It's just not only is it controversial, but it's also with respect to people swimming. You don't want to do it. So we do it at night when there was no one around. And uh, it was just it was I want to say it was one of the best times of my life in terms of you really were the pioneer of your own fishery. You know, you were really discovering it. Yeah. That's super cool. And so one of you would be the kayak person, and I'm sure we, that would have to rotate. <laughs> I was usually the kayak guy. Yeah. Um, yeah, I didn't mind, but um, we would rotate sometimes. But if somebody didn't want to go out, like if it was too rough, I would go. I was I was not afraid of it. Mm -hmm. And then um, what was, do you remember like the first first time that uh, that you 
got something really big, like a hammerhead or a, or a tiger or something off the beach? Yeah. In 2013, I caught, I want to say it was around 12 to 13 feet long. It was actually in Deerfield Beach, south of the pier. And it was like the third or fourth YouTube video I ever posted. It was just on a GoPro, like a four-minute video. I posted it, and this was very early social media. So this is when Facebook was huge. YouTube was still in its infancy, and it went viral. And it went viral locally in the sense that I had seven or eight different news channels reach out to me via email. They found my phone number somehow. It's crazy even back then how people can find your contact info. And I was valeting at the time <clears throat> while I was in college. And I was at a location in West Boca, Bonefish Grill, and I got a call and they said, this is so-and-so from Good Morning America. And I was like, no way. So the next day, uh, it was my, my, not my wife then, but my wife Brooke and I, uh, my buddy Ben, and we went to my apartment and they set up this guy from Good Morning America. They did all the lights and it was my first, you know, real... Um, like your 15 seconds of fame, they call it, right. right? And there was all these lights in your face, and they they interviewed us, and it was supposed to only be like a 20-second segment. It was supposed to air the next morning on Good Morning America, but our slot actually got pushed out because something else more exciting happened. I don't remember what it was. <laughs> like someone was rock climbing and got rescued, but they went through all that effort, and they never even aired it. But yeah, that was the the first hammerhead that kind of, I think that opened my eyes up to I could make a potential career out of this. Yeah. You know? and it so, wasn't just a hobby at that point. So with that, like did that first viral video and the attention that it that it got you right away, did that turn into money? Or yeah. did it just show you that, wow, there if I do this, money will follow? Uh both. Mm -hmm. I, I mean I I knew um I mean anyone in the fishing community probably knows about Black Tip H. Black Tip H mm -hmm. was definitely the biggest player and he was a really big inspiration of mine and I really wanted to um, not recreate what he was doing, but I saw that, hey, this guy's from South Florida. He's creating fishing videos. I could probably do the same thing, but he was, you know, way ahead. He has a big film background. Um, but that video did produce a lot of money. I mean, I'm I'm a pretty open book. It was around four. I made like $4,000 in 48 hours from that video. And that was just insane, especially for a college student yeah. you know, posting a YouTube video. I knew that that wasn't going to happen every single time, but I was like, hey, you know, there is a potential for this. So that's when I think I started to take it a little bit more seriously. That's interesting. And so do your parents ever kind of encourage you to get it? I mean, what, what was your education? What was your what were you going to college for? For biology. I was pre-med. I got into medical school in 2015 at a school in Georgia Brooke went up there with me for my wife, Brooke came up, uh, went through the whole medical school process, came home. And so I was supposed to start medical school in the fall of 2016 because I graduated in 2015. And that entire year, I just was still part time valeting, but I also wanted to uh, see how far I could take YouTube before starting medical school. And at the same time, my grandma, unfortunately, she was going through cancer treatment. So I was also taking care of her. So it was a very um, crazy time of year, right? Mm -hmm. For that leading up to medical school. And it was a few months before I was supposed to start medical school that YouTube just took off. 
it was I was able to finally quit my part time ballet job. There was enough income coming where I was like, I could actually make a career out of this. But then you try to convince your Eastern European dad <laughs> who who's, you know, he's doctor, lawyer, engineer. That's what you're going to be that you want to make videos on the Internet for a living, let alone fishing videos um, for someone who did not like fishing at all. And uh, so there was a lot of pressure there, but I, I actually sent the medical school a request. It's called the Furman letter. And I told them, I explained to them, I told them the truth. I said, listen, I have an incredible opportunity before I commit for a lifelong uh, commitment to medicine. Can I see where I can take this for one year? And also at the same time, I was my grandma's primary caregiver because my dad worked a full-time job. So I was taking her from doctor appointment to doctor appointment. Anyone who's had a family member with cancer knows that it is a full-time job. Yeah. And they said yes. So that year I just kept progressing and progressing and it just got progressively better. And my dad still was like, it's not going to last, you know, it's not going to last. And I understand, you know, he came from Eastern Europe, he came from communism and he wanted just the best for his son. They came here to America for me to have a better future. And but ultimately, you have to go with your gut, and my gut told me to pursue this. So, here we are. Wow, that's that's crazy. I'm I'm assuming that was the story you were going to tell me the other day when we were on the phone. Yes, uh, <laughs> that's that's wild, um, man. Um, so when you when you were um, just messing around with it, and you see that you can, you're like. There, there's a moment in there where you're, you've got this part-time job as a valet, you're thinking about medical school, but then you're thinking, I could quit my job right now and do this full-time. That's what you just, you just kind of walked us through that. But what, what was that like? Because that, that's like, that's the whole reason that we started this podcast in the beginning was to get to those moments of like, when someone decides they're going to be a fishing guide, they quit their part-time job, they, they make the jump. It seems like that's the jump. First of all, deciding that you're not going to go to medical school, at least for mm-hmm. a year, but then that you're not even going to do this valet job anymore. And so what, what was that like? And like, if you, if you quit the valet job, does that mean immediately that you can turn out like three times the, the content or? Yeah, I, th- I think just the availability aspect, you know, a lot of times when you get invited on a fishing trip, you have to make yourself available. And as a valet, you're usually valeting the when people have off Fridays, Saturdays, Sundays, and it was always uh, when I was valeting, I used to film a lot with my wife, Brooke, and we would go out on her family boat. And it's like, you got to be back in by three o'clock because you got to go for your shift. So it's like just the availability aspect gives you a lot more time to focus on the content, plan out trips. And it was still just in its infancy. You know, I was not full time like I am now. I mean, I, I was pursuing it full time, but I was did not have the same business mindset as I do now back then. Yeah. Well, a lot's changed and a lot, mm-hmm. a lot. You've I'm sure you've learned a lot. You learn every every day. But um, yeah, that's um, a lot. A lot's changed, I think, since 2013. I mean, mm-hmm. it's incredible how fast it's changed. Do you do you expect that it's going to change that fast or faster between now and say 2027? I think that the social media environment has stabilized. I think that 2013, it was, you know, we were just setting up the foundation of what this could be. I don't think anyone realized how big YouTube or Instagram or Facebook or anything was going to be. And it was an an entire economy that never existed, Mm -hmm. right? So it 
I think that snowball effect and it grew exponentially. I think now the shifts are much slower and gradual than overnight. Back then it was overnight changing. I think it'll continue to change, but I think that as long as you, just like with medicine, right? As a doctor, you have to be a lifelong learner. You you know that mm-hmm. as a businessman, you have to yeah. be a lifelong learner. As long as you're willing to not be stuck in the past, you're going to make it, you know? That's one thing I always told my dad. He's like, well, what if it doesn't work? And I said, well, what if it does work? You know, if if you apply the same principles that you carry as an engineer or a lawyer or a doctor, if you want to be the best in your field, no matter what, you're going to have to make it work. You have to read up on your um, your discipline, whatever platform you're on. If you're not constantly engaged and not constantly learning about what you're doing, you're not going to be successful at anything you do. Yeah. That's awesome, and it's a great uh, segue into the the questions. So we have um, what we call the hot seat. It's a series of questions, either or questions, questions that you you know something that you prefer, um, and then at the end there's a there's a couple of little deeper questions, kind of uh, similar to what we were just talking about there. So you ready to roll through the? Um, I'm ready. Okay, all right. Fresh or salt? Salt all day. <laughs> Cooking or catching? Oof, catching. Hmm, that was a tight, tight race. Yeah. Uh, drive or fly? Oh, fly all day. Chocolate or vanilla? Chocolate. Text or call? Call. Favorite social media platform? YouTube. Answer every comment or never look at them? The first day, try to answer as many as possible. Would you rather have one million now or 10 million later? Depends on what I could, how I could turn that million into a 10 million, but 10 million later. Okay. One thing you've learned in the last year that has made you money? I would say to listen to people and to know your strengths, but also know your weaknesses. Interesting. Uh, the most challenging thing about Landshark? Just constantly evolving with the platform, just trying to stay relevant and uh, not getting burned out. The easiest thing about Landshark? Being a full-time content creator, I would say the flexibility of the work-life balance. You can work as much or as little as you want to. A movie that makes you laugh? Forrest Gump. Would you have a reptile as a pet? Yeah. A non-fishing destination that you'd like to visit? Ooh, uh, Iceland. Me too. Although it's pretty good fishing over there too. Uh, top fishing destination on your bucket list? Probably Indonesia. One species you'd like to catch? Napoleon wrasse. <laughs> yeah, that's big. Uh, one thing you've changed your mind on in the last two years? To not judge people with preconceived notions. Okay. And then uh, one piece of advice that you live by. It's just just to be friendly to people. Yeah. And um what about the what about the preconceived notion one? I think that just comes with age. You know, I'm I'm 32 and I think that to have the best relationships both business and personal to really just try to put yourself in someone else's shoes. I think that's what I've really just been trying to focus on in the you know the last year. Um, because not everybody comes from the same background as you. Not everyone's had the same struggles as you. So I think there's something to learn from everyone that is around your life. Whether you like them or not, you can turn it into a positive experience. Good. Um, so when you were when you were a kid, what if your dad didn't fish, how did you what what started you fishing? So actually my dad's sister, so my aunt, she used to take my cousin and I fishing. Um, she was dating a man in Sarasota. And so we would go over there a lot. We would fish the Anna Maria Pier and he would also take us on charters. So 
Um, we used to fish Marco Island a lot. We'd fish the Keys a lot. I remember going to Bowdoin Mary's, you know, where the Stansicks are from. And we had one of the most amazing days of dolphin fishing where back in the day, you know, they used to put them in trash cans, right? Mm -hmm. You'd come home with 60 dolphin and you don't even know what to do with all the meat. Those days I don't think are, we haven't had very many of those days recently, but back in the day, I don't think I realized how special it was. And I just used to go on all these charters with them and go to the pier, go to the dock. She also used to live on the intercoastal in Boca and me and my cousin would get a pack of shrimp and we would get uh, steel leaders, you know, the pre-made steel leaders, uh -huh. cast them out with the beads. And I remember my dad uh, took us to Sports Authority when Sports Authority was still a thing. And he got my cousin and I rods. And we used to think conventional reels were called professional poles. <laughs> he, we didn't realize that it was just for a different application, but we wanted to get professional poles. And he got us uh, them. And we just kept backlashing after backlashing. We just didn't understand what we were doing wrong. <laughs> Man, you must but be yeah, good was, to be a professional. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but it's funny. My mom, most girly girl on earth, least fishy person, but her mom is a country woman, makes her own wine. So my family's from Slovakia. And my mom, my mom's mom, makes her own wine, makes her own bread. She's just this kind of like big, burly Slovakian woman. For Christmas, it's, it's tradition to eat carp for dinner. And my mom would tell me growing up, they would have a carp in their bathtub for Christmas dinner because they want to eat the fish as fresh as possible. So my grandma would go and catch a carp, put it in their bathtub, and it'd be there for two days, and then they would butcher it for Christmas dinner. But she has the fishing genes. She loves to fish. She's a huge carp fisherman in Slovakia. But somehow past my mom, my dad, my grandma hated fishing. So it was just me and my aunt that really liked it. Huh. And have you been back over there to, to check out... The carp fishing in Slovakia? No, but I'm going for the first time. My dad and mom have both been a lot, but I'm taking my wife and I in May, actually, for the first time ever. Dude, have you, you've checked into the carp fishing in, in Europe, right? Like, yeah, it, it is looks, a really looks big fun. deal. I mean, a really Huge. big deal. Yeah, they, these guys have their secret recipes with oh, strawberries to flower ratio. It's insane. Everything. It's crazy. When I was a, a trout fishing guide... Um, my sister uh, lives in in England, and she sent me some magazines, like their mm -hmm. field and stream, basically. And it it's called Angling Times is the is the big magazine over there, and it's all about carp. I thought it was a joke. I literally thought it was a joke. They had all these carp, and they were showing all the different ways to do it, and it's incredible. They are so technically savvy over mm -hmm. there, and the carp must be yep. really hard to catch because. They like what you're talking about—the recipe and the chumming and the way they do it—and they, it's really, really hard. And um, I've had a few people, including uh, um, Adrian, um, what was his name? Well, I, I don't know. This is what happens when you get old—you start forgetting people's names that you know by heart. But the the guitarist for Iron Maiden um, is a huge fisherman, and he loves that carp fishing, and he was telling me all about it. It's crazy. I mean, you think that your videos are doing well over here. When you start making carp videos, you're going to really do well. <laughs> I mean, I think I, I've never, I really haven't seen that many on, on YouTube. Maybe I'm just not getting served up uh, like, I, like I do the saltwater videos. But, man, I tell you, those people are crazy about it, crazy about it. And there's some really big fish over there. I think the English, um, like England and, and just all over Europe, I don't know what Slovakia would be like, but 
um, I think it's difficult to find places to fish. Yeah. Like, like public access is not, we, we, we kind of, um, take it for granted how, how great we have it in certain, certainly in certain states. I mean, you look at a state like Idaho, the, almost the entire state is green. You can go anywhere you want to in Florida, Mm -hmm. like just have at it, you know, you can fish so many places, but that's, um, that's one of the things that's so great about America is having that access and not everywhere. You don't have it like that everywhere. No, especially Um, in Florida. We are really blessed with the fact of if you want to catch a fish any time of day, cold front or not, 365 days a year, you have access to water in Florida mm -hmm. if you really want to catch a fish. Yeah. And do you spend much time freshwater fishing? Not really. I'm not, I'm not too passionate about it. Yeah. Um, It's, there's some great stuff. I do love snakeheads. Yeah. The snakehead. There is. Bullseye snakehead. That's my jam. That's what I like. And what what kind of tackle do you like to fish those with? Frog fishing for bullseyes. Yeah. yeah. Do you use a professional pole? <laughs> I use a baitcaster with a line winder, so it's a lot harder to backlash. <laughs> uh huh. They've gotten they've gotten a little bit better. They are more uh-huh. professional these days than they were. Um, but still, I'd probably opt for a spinning rod. Um, just I don't know. I would see that all the time, like um, when we were doing the redfish tournaments and stuff, and when we get over to mm-hmm. Texas. Those guys all fished with baitcasters. They wouldn't fish. None of those guys fished yeah. with, with spinning rods, and they were great with them. I mean, they could throw a little quarter ounce jig with a baitcaster really well. But mm-hmm. I was just like, man, that's too risky in a tournament. And like, you're fishing for money, and you're going to turn and cast this thing right into the wind. Like, I don't know. I just don't do it enough. But that's all they use, right? So, of course, that's what they do. But then there was like this dividing line somewhere around Louisiana where. It was kind of half and half, baitcasters and spin. And then Florida is way more spin, you know, than, but when you get over to Texas, nobody uses spinning rods over there. They certainly yeah. didn't a long time ago. It's but, interesting you bring that up. Have you fished much in California? Um, no, not really. So those guys are big anti-spin. All the offshore guys there, conventionals only. They will, they prefer to cast, uh, you know, the surface irons yep. or whatever they're casting. And applications that would make sense for a spinning reel, all conventional. Mm-hmm. And those guys are die-hard pen guys on the West Coast. It's funny how that happens. I don't know how that happens exactly, but I think it's kind of like an evolution towards that, right? It's like, funny because it's the most progressive state, but they're the most backwards when it comes to their fishing <laughs> practice. Yeah. Well, the uh, I mean, I don't know. Like when you see what the offshore guys do with a spinning rod in Florida, mm-hmm. seems pretty good. Like. You can put yeah. a lot of pressure on a fish with a spinning rod, and mm-hmm. it seems like the, uh, you know, the the applications are incredible, right? I mean, I prefer a spinning rod over a baitcaster. For me, too, as a content creator, I don't know if you ever think about this with TV as well. If I'm a viewer and I'm watching someone catch a fish on a spinning rod versus a conventional, hearing that drag is such an exciting sound and experience. Yeah experience and you don't get that with a conventional you know no not not that i mean you can have a clicker like with a with an offshore with an offshore reel but also the braid going through the 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 guides has a sound that mono didn't used to have like that's Mm -hmm. that's a whole new sound that you know in the last you know 10 15 years to where braid has become like that's that's a sound but like all of those things that you're talking about, and we do think about that on, in TV, and you even have like, you know, like um, Foley Studios where they'll add 
all these extra sounds to mm -hmm. video and stuff like and tv has been doing that for a long time but foley if you don't know what that is if you're watching something and and you hear like sounds of like someone walking across a gravel parking lot they're not picking that up with their microphone there's somebody in post-production and they have all these tools they'll have like coconuts and they'll have uh shoes and they'll have you know like all kinds of different stuff on the ground rocks and gravel and sand and and they ever they'll watch that video and every time they'll they'll be they'll like have shoes on their hands and they'll be putting it in the gravel and they'll hit it perfect and it really adds to it like mm -hmm. i see people doing it now with with fish sounds even on on youtube like when when a fish bites a lure from way out it sounds like the microphone was right next to it well that's a added sound and uh, mm -hmm. and there are people that make their their living just doing that, just adding foley to movies, and they probably make an incredible living at it. Like if you go to one of those studios, though, it's amazing because it's all audio, and so all the walls are like carpet, and it's all quiet in there. And I don't know, it's cool. Do you do that with any of your videos? Add sound. I've had my uh, cameraman editor Dennis do it in a couple videos, like you're saying, where yeah. especially birds. You know, it's. I like it when it makes sense for the ambiance. So if you're flying the drone and you see a bunch of birds, put in the seagulls or waves crashing, you know, or some like dramatic sound when you're going to do a, a hook set. So we've used it a couple of times. Yeah. So how many videos are you doing a year? The goal is one a week. One a week? One a week. Yeah. So 52 a year. That's that's the sweet spot where your demand stays high and your supply matches it. If you start to get too, too much, the the quality will just suffer because then you're, at least for me, I need to do things that I'm passionate about because I, I can tell that it, the audience is going to tell if you're not passionate about something. I'll get excited catching going, going and catching barracuda and cleaning them and eating them, you mm -hmm. know? But the other day we went and tried to film a crappie video in Lake <laughs> Okeechobee and it was just so slow and nothing against crappie. I mean, I think it's, it's a great universal relatable fish, but it was just so slow where you know, your attitude and your emotions are evoked through that video. And if I'm not excited, I don't think someone else is going to be excited. So we just ended up not creating that video. <laughs> um, what about creating the video about how slow it is? We've done that before. <laughs> okay. yeah. yeah, I know. Yeah, I did that um, last year. I think we, we fished for tarpon. Um, we were fly fishing for tarpon and there were tons of fish, but man, they were they were hard to Hot bite. Job. They were they were really tough to bite. So we fished for three days, and uh, I think we hooked two fish, and that was the show. Like how hard it is, right? And people mm -hmm. loved that show. They they really liked it. And I had a lot of people tell me about that. That that like finally you show you showed it the way that it actually is, instead mm -hmm. of like in twenty two minutes you catch six tarpon on fly. And it's like hey every, anybody can do it. Yeah right. Like that's pretty hard. Um, so where did the cooking come from with you? I would say my grandma. My grandma is my biggest inspiration for cooking. She loved cooking for her family, sometimes too much. She would cook a meal, and you know how everyone's got leftovers, right? Right. And she wanted us to – she could never drive. She never learned to drive, fun fact, or ride a bike or swim. She was – She her <laughs> mom was anti -movement. very cautious. Yes. <laughs> so she would cook a meal – and we'd have leftovers for three days, and she'd want us to take her to Publix to go cook something else because she just always wanted to try new recipes. She didn't care if she threw food out. She just wanted to cook for her family. And I think seeing that and seeing how happy it made her made me want to take it up. And I've been cooking 
since I was like 17 um, and just progressively got better, got better. And about three years ago, three or four years ago, a subscriber by the name of James, uh, he's my good friend now, one of my best friends. He's a chef. He reached out to me and said, hey, would you ever want to have me on your show? I think we could do something really cool, like a recipe, you know, have an actual chef. And I was like, yeah. So we went out, we caught snakeheads, and he cooked for, you know, the family and I. And I think my my cooking from the moment of meeting him uh, to before has just progressively got that much better. I think seeing... Uh, for me now, I I almost start with the end product and work my way backwards than trying to think from scratch, like especially with plating and the aesthetic of food. I, I think food, you asked me the question about do I like catching or, or cooking more? It goes back and forth. I love cooking. I love seeing the, the look on people's faces when they're really enjoying something and the endless possibilities of what you can create with a dish and especially with fish. You know, I... It, I have this saying on my channel, no such thing as trash fish, just trash cooks. And there, I, Tom, I have eaten almost every single fish you can imagine on the channel. Stingrays, snakeheads, clown knife fish. I saw chubs, the knife fish. Chubs. Yeah? I can what? tell you right, is chub right good? now. Amazing. I can tell you right now, because I've done this before with friends. If I took a random group of 10 people and blindfolded them and I served them chub and yellowtail snapper, I promise you almost every single person would choose chub over yelltail snapper really and yep a hundred percent is it a fillet so do you better. fillet it just like a, a yep. yellowtail and so the presentation's mm -hmm. very similar yes the the only difference is is that people have these preconceived notions by the way the fish look and smell like same thing with the barracuda mm -hmm. barracudas for some reason have a very uh foul tasting smell to them right they're slime but when you actually fillet them and skin them, they're amazing. And you see all the Bahamians. You've been to the Bahamas. Always. They love them. Not and, just and there, the but in Mexico, like in yes. Christmas Island. Every island culture that I've ever been to loves mm -hmm. the barracuda. Yeah. And then loves I it. don't know where the cigatera. It's not a myth. Cigatera is a real thing. Yeah. But your chances of getting cigatera, especially in the States, is so low. The people who get in the states are the ones who are eating fish from the bahamas or somewhere else their suppliers getting it i i don't eat those giant reef fish from the bahamas but you have just as likelihood of getting cigatera from a big hogfish in the bahamas as you do a big barracuda so what why do you think that the bahamas is any different than the united states because i mean it's only 90 to 250 miles away like, so it was explained to me by several people that our water quality is just not good enough to support the, the I think it's called a dinoflagellite that creates the cigatera toxin. Huh. You need really, really, really clean, pristine water, and that's what you have on the Bahamas. Isn't that funny that, that you would, you you would, the, the higher, the better water quality, the more possibility of ciguatera mm -hmm. yep. wow i've never heard that before but i've always you know but the the bahamians eat barracuda all the time yep. when i went to christmas island not only did they eat barracuda but if you caught a barracuda they would leave it out in the sunshine for 
a long time before they mm-hmm. before they ate it and I mean they did, they Sun would dried. have a there would be like a refrigerator right there I brought in um the fish we caught we caught um what what was it that we caught a tuna and um a tuna and a wahoo and I cleaned those and took them into the kitchen and I said where would you like me to put these she said right here and I so we went back took a shower like maybe I should go check on that fish and went back there it was just sitting there right next to one foot from the refrigerator but like mm-hmm. that's just not part of the what they do and that's they yeah. don't get it, sick in in western culture it's very customary to only ice your fish right and so after traveling to central america i started traveling to central america like three years ago and my eyes were opened because the first time i ever saw uh, fish being processed over there did not look like the fish here but in Mexico, in Panama, in Costa Rica, not to say every operation runs the same, but those pangas, those guys, those commercial fishermen, they go out in a panga for two, three days. They don't always ice their fish, you know? <laughs> right. It, it, and I've eaten, you can tell the difference, but it's still fresh fish. You know, it, it's not going to be as good as fish you get in the States, but it's definitely edible. And I think that People have this idea that is, if your fish doesn't go on ice right away, it's rotten or bad. But no, people all around the world eat fish that they haven't iced. Yeah, and for sure. And and I I don't know, man. I've seen that that happen in in all different kinds of places, and mm-hmm. they just don't have the same deal as we do. But you know, I'll still ice mine if yeah. if I have the if I have the choice. But yeah, it's funny, if, though, a lot of the fish that you get, even in, in places where you would think that they're just buying them off the dock, you're getting fish from, from other places, from Mexico, mm-hmm. from other places. I don't know where, the Bahamas, somewhere. But like even in the Keys, like a lot of restaurants buy. I've heard it's not from, local. For most, most are not. And the locals know what is local. And those are the best restaurants, right? They're they're buying local, but I think they've made it difficult for the fishermen to sell and difficult for the restaurants to buy um, the best fish right off the dock, mm-hmm. which is a real shame. Question for you: What is your what is your favorite eating fish? Favorite eating fish, easy. That is a gray snapper, mangrove snapper. Love it. It's a good one. Uh, but I like I like the entire snapper family um, probably more than the grouper family. Um, don't know why exactly, but I would rather eat a snapper than a grouper. And I like, um, certainly like all the offshore fish, the, the wahoo and tuna and stuff like that. That's, that's fantastic. But, you know, there's some other fish that are, that are, um, really good. Ciro mackerel, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of a fish that not a lot of people think about, but like, it's like the captain's choice, you know, when a Ciro comes in, a lot of times, that one goes in the special cooler on the side because that one's going home with the captain. And, yeah, that's a and good one. Uh, you know, the yellow jack is, is good. Amazing. Yeah, I like that. I like African pompano. Yes, for sure. African pompano is, is outstanding, and, and a lot of people are getting them right now. Um, mm-hmm. It's a good time of the year for them. I like the African. Um, you know, permit's good, too. Um, I don't, you know, people might be surprised, but sometimes they get bitten half by a shark, and I'm taking the, I'm taking the, uh, the end that, you know, there's still meat on it, and mm-hmm. we'll eat that permit. Um, pompano, all those kind of fish, the the kind of thick, dense fish like a pompano or a permit, those are good. Yellowjack, really good. What about you? What what is there a fish that? I mean, I saw you doing the clown knife fish, and you were like, "This is so mushy that it um, that you have to get it off with a spoon, 
right? And then you made a fish cake out of it. Mm-hmm. Like what other fish have you learned how to to eat that people aren't really eating? Ladyfish is the exact same way. Ladyfish. So yeah, there's a there's a certain group of fish. So ladyfish, clown knife fish, and what else have I done? With? I think that's the only two that come to my mind where these fish are always labeled as trash fish, not because of the flavor of the flesh, but because of the preparation you have to do mm. to get your final product. So ladyfish are so mushy that if you were to fillet it and then cook it, it, it would, it, there's no texture to it. There's no bite. There's no flake, right? But that doesn't necessarily deem the fish bad. It's just you as a chef or the, someone who prepares the fish knows how, how to have to prepare it. Mm-hmm. If I told you, hey, the best way to cook a ribeye is to mince it into a thousand little pieces and make it into ground beef, that's doing an injustice to that ribeye, right? Mm-hmm. Or if I want to tell you, hey, you should eat this chicken raw. No, you should eat wahoo raw. You should eat tuna raw. It's every protein source has a right and wrong way to cook it. So with this ladyfish, you scrape the meat off, you leave all the bones on the skeleton. Same thing with the clown knife fish. If you saw the video, if you smell that fish, there's nothing wrong with it. It doesn't taste bad. You got to form it into something that's presentable though. So that's where that fish cake comes into, but I've made it into many different things. I've made it into uh, like fish balls where you, um, I mixed, minced it with ginger, garlic, cilantro, and you put into uh, boiling water and you kind of make like a pho out of mm. it or a ramen type dish. Yeah. And people will say, well, th- the number one thing that frustrates me when I do these trash fish catching cooks is people say, well, you had to do so much to dress it up. And I was like, well, yeah, I mean, every protein has to be treated differently. And if I were to give you a spoiled piece of chicken, right, and you mixed it with ginger and garlic and cilantro and you cooked it, and then you ate it, it's not going to taste good, right? right? Because if once something is bad or inherently does not have a good flavor, it you're going to you're gonna see it no matter what you do to it, right? Mm-hmm. If you eat beef liver and you don't like beef liver, I don't care what you do to it, you're not going to like beef liver. But if you cook a fish and, and make it into a beautiful dish and like it, that doesn't mean that that fish is bad, you know? It, it, it just needed some doctoring up. Right. You know, one of the one of my friends, um, Tom Pierce, he used to he used to fish these tournaments over in in the Bahamas, and they would catch bluefin. And at the end of the tournament, they would tie all the bluefin by the tail together, and they mm-hmm. would drag them out to the end of the bar and sink them. I mean, people used to think that way about bluefin tuna. Now it's like that's a twenty five thousand dollar fish. Same thing with lobster. Yeah. Lobster. Same thing with same thing with ribs. Ribs used to be a poor man's protein source, and it's funny. So my family's from Slovakia, like I mentioned. When they came over here, they were astounded by the fact that things like chicken hearts, um, beef liver, were so cheap. Hmm. Now it's becoming more and more trendy to eat these things. Now the price is going up because the demand is there, and it, it it's funny how artificially. Uh, you know, we perceive things and we give them value. Mm-hmm. What does it take to to turn a fish from a, a fish that you wouldn't necessarily um, deem a, a delicacy to to something that is a delicacy? Now, I, I mean, the, the, the greatest um, example is probably what's going on with the lionfish. I think that's the one that has been successfully kind of 
this is something that no one ate before, and now you actually see it on menus. There's some places where you where you get it. I don't know. What does it take to 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 turn a fish from from something that someone doesn't want to a delicacy? I think just content creation, just getting you know you tell one neighbor about it, that neighbor tells a neighbor, but you can do it through the masses with video. You know, um, you start having certain chefs or restaurants prepare these fish, and then someone tries it. It's just getting someone to get over that preconceived notion, and then once they get over it, then they might like it. Yeah. But, I once went to a I once went to a uh, an event where this um, chef Alton Brown. Do you know who he is? Mm-hmm. He he does a lot of this kind of stuff where he takes something that is not um, known as a good fish or good dish, and then he makes it into something beautiful. And he he has this idea that um, like you have this invasive species of carp that's in the Illinois River. And they like when you see you see these videos. The ones all the that time. jump in the boats. Yeah, they jump all over. They jump in the boats. They're jumping everywhere, and there are just so many there that it's. I mean, I don't know how any other fish can live there. So I'm sure that that's a big problem. That they're so invasive that they're pushing other fish out. And uh, his idea was that if they were considered a food source, then that would all take care of itself, right? Like you you can mm-hmm. obviously catch them very easily. You could probably throw a cast net in there and wouldn't even be able to pull it up. Um, but he had this event where he took those fish and created several different dishes and served it, you know, like a three three course meal, and it was all different um, variations of that particular fish. And it was like a fish ball, and then it was something else, and then it was straight up like just a fillet, and it was really good. Honestly, it was very good. Um, obviously, mm-hmm. he's a good chef and and has has uh messed around with it but um i thought it was really good and that is the way to do it and that's what people are hoping with the lionfish is like well if people think these are really good to eat and they're going out there and they're spearing these lionfish all the time well that's going to you know decrease the the population i guess well that's yet to be seen i don't know people go out there and spear hundreds of those things and uh the ocean's got no fences right no fences and yeah. and uh, they don't really have that many uh, predators. I know some people have been trying to teach like mutton snapper how to eat them and stuff, and they'll eat them off a spear. But there's not a lot of videos of people seeing one just chase down a lionfish and eat it. Right? They'll eat one that's speared. Yeah, speared. Yeah. But I don't know. I hadn't seen it. Have you? No, never. I've I've speared them myself and fed them to nurse sharks and stuff, but them just being out on their own. I mean, they look like the most helpless little fish. They're they're <laughs> slow moving. They don't, I, because they know, I think they know that nothing's going to mess with them. Right. Yeah. I wonder how that happened, that that those end up in the state that they're in right now. I mean, I've, I think everybody's probably heard the, the rumors that, you know, maybe it was like a, you know. The aquarium. A, yeah, the aquarium in Atlantis or whatever. But, I mean, could that possibly be? It's, it's tough to imagine because they'd have to release... Let's say even if they release three, what are the chances those three lionfish make it to the same rock and then breed and then, you know, find each other? I don't, I don't know. Yeah. It, it's very crazy to think that an ocean that big, unless you're releasing I know, and then how them. do they get to, you know, over here? But I guess, you know, like you say, the ocean has no fences and the ocean also has lots of currents. And when you have these, I mean, we were just doing a podcast the other day about bonefish, the way that the ocean currents move they the the fish will move to an area that by you know 
instinct, they know that they're, this is their, their spawning area. Well, that may also be an area where the, the ocean currents will disperse, you know, these fertilized eggs all over the place or to a certain area where they're going to be able to grow up in the, in just the right, uh, area. And, you know, those things are like, I don't know, we've tried to figure out like what it is and why they're doing what they're doing, but there's still things that it amazes me too. It's such an amazing, we we went, um, we went shrimping the other night, you know, this is the time of year where the shrimp Mm -hmm. run. And I was just thinking a shrimp is this small, right? He has to have the tiniest brain (laughs) yet. He knows when there's a full moon and a southeast wind and there's this tide which happens you know all summer long why don't they do that in the summertime they know that between the months of december and april they're going to flush out of biscayne bay and work their way up the coast and yep. an animal that small it's how about a worm miraculous. like a palolo worm yep. they do that once or twice or maybe hatch. three times a year at most that we know of i mean but it could be that maybe they only do it where we can see them that one time of the year that that we know of, right? It could be, mm-hmm. who knows? They could be, if that was all happening in, in 150 feet of water, nobody would see it. We wouldn't know. I mean, maybe yeah. some divers, maybe, if it, if it was around like a dive location. But if it's just happening out in the middle of nowhere, what's why, why is anybody down there, right? Like yeah. if there's not a wreck there or something. So I always wonder that. But we had this, we had this, uh, podcast with with one of my friends Mike Larkin and he he is a very um good and experienced fisheries biologist and he's done a tremendous amount of work on bonefish and he was talking about um this bonefish that was tagged in Key Biscayne and it was actually tagged by Joe Gonzalez who was a, a RIP Joe Gonzalez he's a very famous fishing guide right there and so a reputable person tagged it, and then it swam apparently over to the Bahamas, and someone that I had fished with a whole bunch of times, Brian Harris, who's a dermatologist up your way, um, caught it. It was like, that's interesting. Take a picture of the tag, whatever, report it. Mm-hmm. And these scientists were like, no way. That's impossible. Like, What? Like, it just happened. It is possible. Yeah, I know. But uh, Mike um, presented this information, and he was met with, like, these scientists just just disputing it, saying, "No, he's lying to you. There's no way that that happened." And then, of course, it happens again, and it happens probably a, a lot of other times. But I wonder why there is that closed-mindedness on something like that, especially on a fish that all it has to do is swim like a hundred miles, like. Mm-hmm. We know of tons of fish that swim hundreds of miles, so, so we don't know that the bonefish does that, but it seems like they would. Like, I don't know. That's what a tag's for. You tag it here, it gets caught here. Doesn't that prove that it went to the different different place? Um, but but apparently that was he was met with some some real uh, disagreement there, and he couldn't figure it out either. I like, I don't even know what to say. Um, I here's the here's the data. So what what do you think happened? They were like, uh, they're lying to you. Yeah, this this dermatologist in in Tampa that has zero to gain from this is lying to you about about tagging a bonefish. Like it's it yeah. could only discredit him. Like he has no reason to do that. No. So I don't know. No. Anyway, it's kind of funny um, how how that stuff happens. 
So what do you think, um, if you were to, uh, you know, predict the future here, what do you think, um, what do you think the next few years are going to look like for you? Definitely kids. Oh yeah. <laughs> On the personal side. Oh nice. yeah. Yeah. I, I would love to have kids. Um, I, as I know, I don't want to say it sounds mundane, but I would love to just keep doing what I'm doing, you know, every year, just exploring a different fishery, filming videos on it, keep doing the catch clean cook thing. Um, trying to, you know, I, I really like it when, when we meet fans in public, whether it's Publix or the beach or something, they say, we've learned so much from you. We've learned so much from you. And I think the, especially the local aspect, because we film a lot of videos out of Hillsborough Inlet. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of people who, especially during COVID, moved down here. And it's like their first time getting their feet wet. And if you could just give them one tip. I remember, I remember when I started out and I was so excited to catch a blue runner or my first mackerel. And I can only imagine the satisfaction these people get when they catch their first kingfish or dolphin. And knowing that you gave them that help to catch it and then they watch a filet video and they're like, okay, I know how to filet this thing. And then they get a recipe and it's just like you make their day. You know, I, I love putting myself back in their shoes of when I first started and I mean, you've been doing this a lot longer than me, and I'm sure you still have the same passion for fishing, but you you become a little desensitized to fish and what you do. And catching your 7,000th Blue Runner is not exciting as the first, <laughs> you know? And seeing, seeing people react to your videos and the impact you have on their lives, I think, is what I like the most about our job. Um, I was in Publix yesterday. I got recognized. It's just no matter where you are, I, I recently took up surfing and there's a huge overlap of surfers and fishermen. Mm -hmm. um, I never realized it. And now I'll be out there in the lineup and I'm surfing and they're like, are you land shark? And I'm like, yeah. And I'll start having a conversation. They start talking about how much they like the videos and they're like, we didn't know you surf. And I was like, I didn't know either. I just started. <laughs> um, so yeah, just, I, I think the impact you have on people's lives is really special. Um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, not selfishness, but there's a, a lot of personal satisfaction I get out of making a good video or catching a new fish or going to a different fishery. But at the end of the day, I realize like, I'm not doing it for myself. I'm doing it so people can be entertained or, or get some type of value out of it or learning. And we always try to keep family at the center of what we do. Right. So at the end of almost every single video, I'm either cooking for my family or for Brooke's family. And I like showing people that, you know, even at this day and age with how the world's going, you know, a 32 year old guy with his wife is cooking for their family on a Friday night, you know, not going out. So mm -hmm. I like that. Um, just continuing to expand. And I'd like to come out with, with products eventually, whether that'd be apparel or, um, fishing tackle is just something I've dragged my feet with because I think when I do it, I want to do it the right way. And it's just finding the, the balance of content creation versus approaching that side of the business. Cause that is something that's going to take up your, you know, full time and effort. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're doing a great job with, with what you're, uh, with what you're doing. The videos Thank are you. awesome. And, um, you know, is it land shark everywhere? Land shark yes. outdoors on yeah, YouTube. Mm-hmm. TikTok, Instagram, Facebook. How's TikTok for you? Oh, it's funny you bring that up. I just spent all morning deleting like a hundred videos. <laughs> <laughs> Why would you delete them? Um, I've heard mixed mixed things. TikTok is a, uh, you know how you talked about the platform changing. Uh huh. 
I used to be a lot more consistent and then I stopped posting on it. And I think the algorithm recognizes when you don't post and then they kind of, you know, people call it shadow banning, but it's not that. It's just the algorithm realizes, hey, you weren't doing as, as good as you once were, so they're just not going to give you the love. And I was just kind of deleting the videos that I thought don't really match up with the style of the content I'm posting now, which is much more storytelling rather than just these quick five to 10 second um, viral clips. So like I said, it's just a constant, you know, learning. People think that it's, I think if, if one thing as a content creator, if people could realize that I get them to realize that it is a full-time job, you know, it is not, I wake up, I go film a video and I got the rest of the week off. My brain is 24 seven thinking about the next thing that I can do and making sure to stay relevant and making sure that, you know, you're walking a, a fine line of not boring people, but still entertaining them and also doing things that you enjoy doing. Right. Yeah. That's the real trick because all of a sudden it becomes something that you don't like doing. Mm -hmm. And I've seen that with a lot of people that um, make content for YouTube is like, this video has to be better than the one before. And then it has to be better. And you get in this constant state of mm -hmm. one upping yourself which is like the whew. Mr. Beast effect. Yeah, that's tough, man. I mean, that's really tough. Yeah. And and we've never felt that way on TV necessarily, even though we've got 250 episodes, I think. Um they're all each one's different. It doesn't have to be like one like this one doesn't have to be better than the last one. It just needs to be different than the last mm -hmm. one, right? And but you know, there's a lot of people that it has to be better and crazier with a bigger superstar, with a bigger, bigger whatever. And that could be, I could imagine that's incredibly fatiguing for some people. Yeah. But mm. other people would just thrive on it, you know? Like that's that's what they're that's what they're doing. But your stuff seems seems uh, it's really good. So if you're not following Landshark Outdoors, you should. And uh, whatever your favorite platform is, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, uh, TikTok, anything else? No, that's it. That's that's a plateful right there. Do you think there'll be a new platform? We've been kind of stale on the creation of new platforms. I mean, it, there for a little while, it was Facebook was everything, and then YouTube, and then all of a sudden Instagram pops up, then TikTok mm -hmm. pops up, then some go away. But then it seems like for the last couple of years, it's been pretty much those are the players, and there hasn't been a lot of, that I've noticed, um, other platforms. Well, Snapchat was huge with my kids and everything, but that didn't mm -hmm. seem like something that you could create for necessarily. Um, I, I think it would be ignorant of us to say that nothing else will come along. But like you said, I think these companies, Google, Meta, they have so much capital and so much money that they are not going away. And even if something does come along, I think the only reason TikTok hasn't been acquired is because it's not a U.S.-based company right. or otherwise Meta or Google would have acquired it a long time ago, even if right. just to squash it. Um, so like I think Vine. that... Vine. Yeah, I liked I Vine think, and, and yeah. then that got bought and squashed. Mm -hmm. I think the, the players that are here are here to stay. They might have to share some of the market with a newer company, but I don't really know. I, I think the next step would be something like virtual reality, uh, which is basically live. I mean, all these platforms support live, but I think that people are going to be much more interested in uh, live aspect of people's lives. So mm -hmm. instead of you posting and creating content 
just come and spend the day with me, you know, right. in, in real time. Yeah, I see that happening, but I think that until we get away from these headsets or like, yeah. it's got to be something that's that's more, I mean, like I saw the other day there, there was like this unidirectional mat that you can be wearing your, your virtual headset. And then like if you were to walk, you could just start walking, but you're not actually going anywhere, but it just feels like you're walking. So you could actually be walking this way and I could be walking this way. We'd be standing right next to one another. And, and But you're in your virtual reality world. It feels like you're mm -hmm. walking. The ground seems to be moving under your feet. It's pretty realistic. But I just think until you get away from the mats and the headsets and the, like, it's it seems too early. Like eventually, yeah. Have you have you used one of those I've, headsets? Yeah, I've seen. Yes, I've used one. I don't like it. I don't it like it dizzy. either. But it is. Oh. Well, I don't even like to wear like two headphones at the same time. Like if I'm running or or working out or something, and I'm listening to something, I like only one, so I can hear cars or or whatever. But I only use one headset. I'm I'm sitting here with two headsets on mm -hmm. right now. But unless I'm doing something like this to where there's no external thing to worry about i use one and that's what i feel with the with a vr headset i feel like wow i am completely exposed to like anything in the real world like i could walk off a stair i could walk off a cliff you could just like you don't know i mean you are so immersed in that in that virtual world that you're you're not aware of what actually is going on you're not going to hurt yourself in the virtual world but you could <laughs> you could break your ankle walking off yeah. a stair, you know, or falling down the stairs. But I, I'm not crazy about them. I don't think that we're um, alone in that. I think that's what's really holding it back. Like if you get a contact lens or something that that you can do everything that you can do with Google Glass, mm -hmm. or you could have like like some sort of a wearable thing. Contact lens seems to make the most sense. Or even if they're just glasses that that are much more low profile than like these headsets. I don't know. Or it turns into something like Iron Man where you'd go like this and a hologram pops up. Like that seems... That would be cool. That seems like once that kind of stuff happens, then I see it really taking off. But until then, I think that, you know, most people aren't going to aren't gonna fully buy in. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. Uh, but when they do, we can go uh, take them fishing all day long. And <laughs> although it might not be as much fun as they thought, like it's like, huh, uh -huh. they caught way more fish in that 20 minute uh -huh. video than they did in this 19 hour fishing trip that we're on. Yeah. Um, but sometimes you gotta, you gotta show them what, what that's about too. Oh, we're going to start, we're going to start with the morning of, of getting all the stuff ready, getting the boat ready so they can have the full experience and then cleaning the boat. Oh yeah. And also if you could, if you could insert the feeling of, of, very little sleep of on that the night before where you're so excited that you don't sleep then you got to wake up at 3:30 so you can get all the stuff ready so that you can be at the boat to get everything ready then get, yeah. to be able to go and catch the bait so that you can then go fishing at 11 o'clock um you know that's mm -hmm. that's more along the lines of reality <laughs> i would say I that's think. the the one thing the my least favorite thing about fishing i know you're big into uh fitness and and strength training yeah and I am too, and fishing and lifting are so not conducive to one another. <laughs> fishing ruins your sleep schedule. Yes, you know? it does. Mm -hmm. um, what do you do for fitness? I do a pull leg routine. I just do a, a three days a week, and then I've been trying to do yoga lately for the surfing. Mm -hmm. um, my mindset's shifted a lot. You know, the the older you get, I mean, I'm only 32, but I could definitely feel it in my joints, just trying to be nimble and just trying to be an agile, fast athlete, not 
as big as possible. Yeah. You know? But yeah, just push pull legs. Yeah. Well, agile and fast, that translates to um agile and old. Um <laughs> and that's what you that's what you really want is to be able to to get around and move when you're when you're getting a little bit older. At thirty two yeah. you don't even notice it, but at forty two, forty two you kind of start noticing it. At fifty two it's definitely there and some for some people it's debilitating and for other mm-hmm. people it's kind of like I don't know, feel like I did when I was 22, honestly. For me, I, you know, you're a big inspiration for me in terms of that because I, nobody in the fishing community is really doing what you're doing with the lifestyle. Yeah. And I think it's important because fishing, and if you look at the average fisherman, they're generally out of shape. You know, there's a lot of beer drinking going on and, and I, I hate to see it, man. I want to see people thrive when they're older. I don't think people realize what you're doing in your thirties is shaping up your entire foundation for your, you know, you save up all this money to retire. Yeah. And, and then you can't, then you can't do what you had hoped your entire Mm -hmm. life you were going to be able to do. And you finally have enough, enough money to buy, you know, the, the 36 yellow fin or whatever. And it's like, my knees hurt so bad that I can't go. Um, yeah, but you know, I started sharing what I was doing on the physical side mostly for guides, for professional guides, because so many guides have bad backs. Um, They've hurt themselves in some way. Their knees hurt. And it's like, you know, if you just did some basic things, you could extend Mm -hmm. your career by 20 years. If you just did some basic things, you could be so much more um, comfortable doing what you're doing. And just just with a basic program, you could be so much better at what you're doing than than you than someone might currently be, um, and I don't know. So many guides get get into the uh, too much drinking, too much sun, not enough sleep, yep. and not enough activity. Even though that that it's a very active thing, but at the same time, it's not. Like you take somebody fishing for the first time that doesn't go fishing that much. They're exhausted at the end of the day. I mean, just wiped out. And then you can have somebody else that does it every single day, and they can do that same thing for, you know, 150 days in a row. There's That's a certain type of fitness and a certain type of conditioning that they've gotten good at, like the sea legs and everything. You know, it's it's not so – it's like wrestling for the first time. Like if you're, you're just all tight and, and tense and, and you just burn up, like you, you can't last – 25 seconds but Mm -hmm. then somebody that's more experienced is more you know they can they can go a lot longer because they're more relaxed the same thing being on a boat like first time somebody gets on a boat and every every step is like you know they're you know what i'm talking about like they look like a a scared cat out there and then you see somebody that you know it's like they used to call it sea legs you just don't have your sea legs yet then finally you get your sea legs it's like now you're moving with the boat and you're not even thinking about it like it's just like it's just kind of the natural movement but i don't know a lot of guides um just get into this thing where they put on a little extra weight and then they're lifting stuff heavy coolers heavy stuff all day long the boat off the trailer um and and they hurt them back and that's that's a bad deal because now no matter what being a fishing guide is just like being a professional athlete like if you're hurt you got to go or you don't make any money mm-hmm. Right. So mm-hmm. it's all about your, your body. So I started uh, sharing all that stuff, mostly for guides, but then some other people liked it, but you know, it's pretty much a uphill battle um, to, to introduce fitness to the fishing community because 
Not that many people are into it. Nope. But I've, I I don't think I've ever met a more not fit group of individuals than fishermen in terms of like a, a niche. You think so? I mean, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. It's there's a lot of different types of fishing too. Like if you're yeah. if you're like I mean there's certainly fishing that is more athletic than others. The fly fishing guys who are pulling people around, those guys are fit. You cannot yeah. you got to be in shape. Well, you do, but even then you can you can be in shape to pull somebody around for 8 to 10 hours a day, but could you run a mile? Like a lot of them are a, a definite no. Mm-hmm. Absolutely not. But, you know, that's kind of the guide body, the big shoulders, the big gut, and and being able to, you know, pull for days and days. Also big, strong forearms and strong grip mm-hmm. from holding the pole, you know. But um, I don't know. They, there's there's a lot of guys that are in, in good shape, but there's a lot of guys that just aren't, and it's just not really that that important to them, I guess, or they haven't made the, may haven't made the correlation between being in better shape and catching more fish. Yeah. That's what I, I did think- early. I think, uh, you know, I mean, you definitely had an impact. I, I see your stuff on social media all the time. I think that the best thing you can do to um, better someone's life in terms of, you know, fitness is just your local community. You know, um, in the last two years, we really got Brooks' parents into taking their health seriously. They started going to the gym with us. Now they go to the nice. gym. They, they change the way they eat. And, uh, you know, they lost a lot of weight. And it's just your local community and then they tell someone about it they tell someone about it you know people see results you can't change the world but you can change you know the little world around you definitely can and uh i'm gonna become a better cook by watching some of your videos i want you need to um i'd love it you probably have already done it but i'd love it if you would do one about sauces like that seems to be where like i'm not good with the sauces and the fish and when Mm -hmm. i go like to a restaurant or to somebody that is a, a excellent uh, chef, um, that's the difference. It seems like seems like I got the fish preparation down, kind of like they do. Like I can do that, but then they'll put this little sauce on it, and it just makes it so awesome and so much better. And um, I've always kind of struggled with sauces. I don't know. How do you feel about sauces? Is that something that you use, or you is that? A, not. I think I'll, I'll try to give you three little little pointers right okay. now, right? Okay. So you're going to start with your aromatics, right? So things that smell good, garlic, shallot, ginger, onion. Um, you start sauteing those in butter, some type of fat, okay? You get those going. Then you're going to see if you want to do a wine base or some type of cream base, or you can use chicken stock for the actual liquid, right? So once your vegetables are sautéed, and if you want to thicken it up, you put in a little flour to make a roux, then you put in your liquid, whether it's your cream, your stock, clam juice, whatever it is, whatever direction you want to go. You let that reduce a little bit, and then you finish it off with, uh, if you want to go an Asian route, you can do cilantro. If you want to do an Italian route, you do in some parsley. You could do a parsley cream sauce. If you kind of just break it down into three individual components, um, you can you know you can take it a lot way. Or if you want to add in some fruit, um, some mango or peach. But I think the biggest thing with cooking is is you can't learn the recipe. You got to learn why you're doing the recipe, right? It's the same thing with fishing. People 
People can watch fishing videos until they're blue in the face, but you're never going to be able to recreate that exact same day that someone else had success with. And you know that as a fisherman. Mm -hmm. It's why did I troll that planer this time of day, this time of year? Because there's a possibility there's water around the full moon. And it's the same thing with cooking, right? Learn the foundation and the basics. I tell people cooking is way easier than you think it is once you learn 10 basic principles, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I can certainly see that. I mean, just yeah. to what you're saying on the sauces makes a, makes a lot of sense right now. And it's like, okay, so you could, I mean, just with that, you could create different sauces for three different types of foods and mm -hmm. different directions that you want to go. And then you could make almost the exact same sauce with slight variations and it's going to taste completely different exactly. for something yep. else. Yeah. Yep. So that's, uh, that's really good. All right. So I'm going to try that. Uh, I'll try, I'll try one of your, your sauces and uh, see if that makes our, our fish better. Go for it. All right, man. Well, I really appreciate you coming on. And uh, if you're not following Landshark Outdoors, you should definitely do that. Find him on every platform. And we'll be back with another awesome guest like Victor next week. All right. See ya. that has the stories to back it a life to be proud of it's a winchester life yeah baby six eight western oh, mule there baby right there tune in every tuesday at 7 p.m eastern on waypoint tv don't miss mondays with into the blue brought to you by academy sports and outdoors every monday night from 7 to 10 p.m eastern on waypoint tv the destination for outdoor entertainment